Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? Hello, 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 survivors. This is Gina. Uh, this week, we are sans co-hosts, just one host today. I'm missing my better half. Boz is, Boz is actually attending to a friend who got terrible health news this week, and she is in her very Boz-like way being there for her friend and being the amazing person and friend that she is, which is why everybody loves Boz. Anyway, she'll be back next week, if you're not. But today we have, honestly, you guys, this is the interview I have been waiting for. Molly Smith Metzler is a writer extraordinaire. You may have heard of her latest project, Made, number three on Netflix, entering its 28th day online, which has some very special meaning for Netflix that I hope to know more about one day. And previous to May being the showrunner for Mage, she also worked on Shameless and several other successful television shows. And before that, she was a playwright. And actually, I got to know her work because I directed a play of hers called Cry It Out. And it was a fantastic experience. And I started communicating with her over email when I was directing, and I was so impressed with the way that she responded to me. I mean, A, that she responded to me at all, that she was available to me at all, not something you always get with a playwright, and B, that she really took her time with her responses, and C, that her responses ended up being pretty uh, impactful for me, just not necessarily related to the play, but as a person. And I'm a little embarrassed that when I talked to her and I told her (laughs) the way that she had impacted me, I just started seriously just crying, crying, crying. And I was having this thought like, I, this is not a moment I want to be crying. And I'm generally in life. I, I welcome tears as a person who struggles to access their emotions. I do. I welcome a good cry, but I did not want to be crying to Molly Smith Metzler in this great interview. But you know, it is what it is. If I'm going to be honest, I have to be honest. <laughs> I can't be choicy about when I'm uh, being myself. That's my, that's my uh, mantra recently. You have to be yourself in all the ways. Some of those ways are ugly and disgusting and, uh, you know, unsavory. And some of them are fine and some of them are be- even beautiful. So I'm working on embracing the uh, mess that I am. But I really think you're going to enjoy this interview with Molly. She's fantastic, even without the always wonderful presidents, presidents, presence. Maybe she should be president. Even without the always wonderful presence of Boz, we still managed to have a great conversation. And actually, that whole experience of her at the last minute not being able to do this and this being the first time we're doing this with one host, 
um, turns out to have been a, like a good thing for us to go through to learn that, yeah, sometimes we're not both going to be available. And sometimes when I'm not available, she'll be doing a, a, an episode on her own. So, you know, whatever. We're growing, changing, learning. Hey, we're in 22 countries now. If you have not uh, subscribed to this podcast, please do. If you have not rated this podcast or given it a review, please, 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 please do it. Seriously, please do it. Please, I'm begging you. <laughs> I'm seriously begging you. Please do it. But okay, anyway, here's Molly Smith. whatsoever <laughs> and un- unfortunately my partner Jen it, it, her very good friend just got diagnosed with cancer yesterday and she's with her right now helping so she's not going to be able to join us this is actually the first time we're doing an interview with just me so we'll see how it goes <laughs> oh fun well, I'm sorry for Jen that's terrible yeah yeah it is and she just she has a lot of experience with with cancer so she's sort of like the first people first person people call which is like a blessing and a curse yeah 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 exactly exactly but anyway congratulations molly smith metzler you survived theater school and you're gonna have to clarify for me because it looks like you went to four schools but you didn't go to four theater schools did you I went to four schools. Yeah, I did. They're not all theater schools, but I went to um, undergrad SUNY Geneseo in Western New York. uh, And I was an English major. And then I went to Boston University and got a master's in creative writing with a concentration in playwriting. Okay. Um, And then I went to Tisch and got an MFA in playwriting, dramatic writing. And then I went to Juilliard, which is, you you don't really get a degree there. It's called an uh, artist diploma, but it's just finishing school, basically. Oh, Okay. So the decision to to do the MFA, were you thinking at that time that maybe you were going to be a teacher? I'm always curious about MFAs in writing because, you know, if you learned what you needed to know and, you know, why not just put yourself out there and be a writer? I think it's very scary to take that jump. Um, The thing about school that I got addicted to is that I'm actually way too social to be a writer. I like being around other writers. (sighs) Okay. And every and every time you go to a graduate program, you're with a bunch of writers and you have deadlines and you kind of, you know, it's a really public way to study writing versus alone in your apartment while waitressing, yeah. you know, right. and, and I kept getting um, academic support to attend the programs. And so that was part of it. I'm not sure I would have gone deep into debt to get all those degrees, but if they right. kept giving me aid, I kept going. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. <laughs> and did you always know from day one that you, I mean since you were in high school anyway, that you wanted to be a writer, that you wanted to write dramatically? I always loved writing. I had journals and um, from a very young age, I I loved to write, but I had a sort of more academic feeling about it. I thought I was going to get a PhD in English and join the academy and and be a professor. And um, I didn't know I was creative in the sense of uh, dramatic writing until my senior year of college when I took a playwriting class. I didn't know I was a playwright, and I also didn't know I was funny. Those two things emerged at the same time. Um, wow. So you didn't have an experience with theater before then? Well, I grew up a ballerina, so I had a great oh. sense of the stage and the relationship between an audience and someone on stage. I really, like, 
I understood light and the power of an audience, but I, um, no, I didn't grow up a theater nerd at all. I grew up a nerd nerd, like an actual nerd. <laughs> <laughs> so that must have been like just a whole new exciting world. Did you decide pretty much right away that you were going to be getting your MFA when you discovered that you liked playwriting? Yeah. Yeah, I did. I took this introduction to playwriting class and it was one of those things. People talk about this like in a romantic relationship where you're just like it changes your whole life. And I didn't have that in a romantic relationship, but I had that with Playwriting 101 where, you know, I just, I, it came, I don't want to say easily to me because there's nothing easy about Playwriting, but it came, it was like a big release in my life that I arrived at Playwriting and um, loved doing it. And it's like a big jigsaw puzzle and you can stay up all night doing it. And I knew from the very first basically from the first act of a play that I wrote that it's what I wanted to do. I'm very lucky. It like was very clear. Yeah. Yeah. That is really lucky. So we have talked to almost 60 people now. The majority of them have been actors. So we've really delved deep into like everything about being an actor, especially at the age (laughs) of undergrad and what that's like to be growing up, you know, just growing up and then trying to, figure out yourself well enough to be an actor and all the stuff that comes along with that, including, you know, the competitiveness with your cohort. But I imagine that's what it, well, I I don't want to imagine what it's like. What is it like with your cohort when you're all writers and you're presumably reading each other's work, critiquing each other's work? Does it get really competitive? I suspect that it can you know, I feel very lucky because I have never experienced that directly in a graduate program situation. Um, part of it is I think I went to really great places where everyone who gotten in was incredibly talented and brought such a unique point of view and voice that none of us were trying to write the same play. So it was really easy to just support each other. Um, and also it's fun, you know, you're reading it aloud. So if something's in the South, you're trying an accent and it's super bad because you're a playwright. So I found it, you know, I became close with the other writers. And uh, I mean, I married one of them. I, Colin, my husband, he and I were in the same graduate program at Tisch. And it, there is something beautiful about meeting someone in a writing workshop because you're just sort of naked. It's all, you know, yeah. you, you, it, I imagine it's like, I, I understand why actors fall in love too. It's like, you're just so vulnerable and you know each other in a deep way. But my experience has been that writers are pretty pretty darn supportive of each other um and if you're not you kind of don't fit in like if you're a jerk if you're a competitive jerk like you're not meant to be a playwright playwrights need to love people because that's what we do you know yeah yeah that's a very good point actually we talked to chisa <laughs> hutchinson yesterday and love she her. basically said yeah isn't she awesome yeah she's and a beautiful inside and out like just but yeah yeah, she and she echoed the same thing in what you're saying. So I guess we're going to stop asking this question about competition. It's just that it's so much of a part of like the act. And I think it's part of just how the program is structured. I mean, you're literally up for the same parts against each other and they, you know, po- post it on a wall and everybody Absolutely. shows up to <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, I was at Juilliard where they still cut people. You know, that system has changed a little bit. But um, <clears throat> I was at the the version of Juilliard that was structured to drop 10% of the class out. And I feel like you don't get, I don't know, I learned a lot about that because they cut playwrights as well. And I feel like that doesn't that doesn't bring forth good creative work from anybody. That pressure of, you know, is Sally going to get cut instead of me? That's, that's, that's not yeah. teaching me good good skills, I don't think. 
It's true. And at the same time, like a lot of the people who were cut from our program went on to have better careers than the majority of us. So it's just like not a lot of rhyme or reason to it. It's like SNL. Yeah. I mean, yes, it's not a predictor. (laughs) Right, right. Exactly. Okay. So you graduated or you you finally finished school with Juilliard um, after doing it for for a number of years. Then what, what happened next? You were you were married or you were in a relationship and well, how do, how do two writers figure out what their next steps are going to be when school's over? Well, I don't know how two writers in general would do it, but I can tell you how Colin and I did it, which is that we, um, we've never been competitive because we write really different plays. Like I am talking to, you know, especially as a playwright, my, my work tends to, I mean, I've written Boulevard comedies. Like I really like to laugh. My husband's plays, everyone's on meth and they're in Appalachia. You know, it's like we are, we are, we are really yin and yang. And, um, but I think being, I really recommend being married to or spending your life with another writer. If you are a writer, because they get it and they get you in like a deep, deep way. So if you have to stay up till four o'clock in the morning, cause you're inspired and you have to finish the scene, you know, um, there's, there's just, a, there's no jealousy about that. There's an acceptance and our, it really, I think I, I often say, I don't think I'd be a playwright. Certainly would be, any of the things that I am, a mother, either, like everything is because of Colin. I, I had someone who believed in me more than I believed in myself. And at points, that is everything because, you know, your play opens in New York, you get just the worst reviews in the world and you take, you, you know, you take to the bed and you don't think you're ever going to write again. And it's so important who you decide to spend your life with because, um, you know, Colin always saw me as the writer first and foremost. And, uh, you know, it's like, it, <clears throat> the same goes for him. So we, yeah, but just technically, do we have money? No, we lived in a, a, a apartment in in Brooklyn that we got through kind of like a hookup. My husband was he managed the bar downstairs, so he knew the guy, and so we got this apartment that we could you know actually afford. But we both worked full time, waiting tables and bartending. And then if I got into the O'Neill, for instance, he would do extra bartending to support me being at the O'Neill, and. You know, he went out to LA for a few months and did a bunch of meetings and screenwriting stuff. And I supported him with the Juilliard money. Like we just have always worked it out until the last handful of years when we finally don't have to. We can both be working. It's great. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. That, by the way, that makes so much sense about the difference in your writing because in watching Made, you know, I remember getting to the end of the first episode that he wrote. And not not having known throughout the episode that he wrote it, being like, "Wow, this is really, really different than Molly's writing." And of course, it, it, it was his. And I and I kind of tend towards that darker stuff too. So, yeah. The, and by the way, the series is fantastic. It is so mm-hmm. good. And wow, you are having such a moment. You're getting great reviews. People are loving. I saw even today. It's number three on Netflix. How are you doing with success? Because people ex- assume that it's all great, but I'm guessing it's not. And I'm guessing it's kind of scary too. Well, this is all pretty just great. You know, <laughs> like I, I think there's probably two things that are tricky about it, which I'll tell you in a second. But the the fact is, it's just, it's great, especially because it's made, you know, made is the closest to playwriting I've done for the screen. I, I see the show as 10 individual plays and it's really just about cleaning and feelings. It's the most character-driven thing I've seen on TV in a long time. There's no murder. There's no cool accents. We're not in Hawaii. Like, it's it's just about one woman's cleaning and feelings. And 
every time we turned in an episode, I thought Netflix would call and be like, you know, this is too weird. Like the couch can't eat her. That's just too weird, you know? Um, but they let me make this like, you know, artistic, I think like very beautiful thing. And I didn't really believe that they were going to air it. And then I didn't really believe that people were going to watch it. And so the fact that the fact that it is exactly what I wanted it to be and people love it, it's very, I don't know. I think it's really exciting. Just as a writer, it's exciting. It's like, oh, maybe we can return to doing harder things on the screen and on the stage again. You know, I think audiences weren't deterred by the fact that it was difficult. You know, they leaned in. And so I feel like it's really, it's mostly just fantastic. I am surprised that people love it this much, but no, I'm just, uh, I'm so proud of it. So it feels great. That's all there is to it. What were the, you said, what, you'll tell me about the two things that have been challenging. Yes. That, <laughs> um, it is challenging. Um, I, and I know you'll relate to this, but coming up in the theater, there are so many of us that, that are just working hard and waiting tables and waiting for our break. And that was me as well. And you want to help every single one of those people. And you want to help every single one of those people whose cousin is also in LA. So like, that's the part that's really hard for me is that I can't, I can't do for everyone. And I want to, and especially theater people, like if you, if someone sends me a, a you know, a cold email, but the subject is like, I'm a playwright, like I, I read it and then I, I you know, I, I can't help it. So that's a little hard because I want to be good to everyone and, and can't. So that's, that's hard for me. And the other thing that's just hard is, um, you know, I spend my life in sweatpants and now suddenly have to do a bunch of stuff where I look, have to look very, you know. <laughs> oh, mm, that would be yeah. hard for me too. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, writers are writers. We're writers for a reason. And so, um, so suddenly I have to like, I had to buy lipstick. And so that part of it is a little <laughs> being articulate, like next to Margot Robbie is very difficult for me, but. Um, oh yeah. I just learned to, I didn't realize until just today that she was the producer. So she's, she's the person who optioned the book. So she and John Wells got the book together. John Wells is, you know, a very famous producer. He did West Wing and ER and, and Shameless, which is how I know him. I worked in the last four seasons of Shameless as a writer on the show. So when he and Margot got the book, um, LA was, had just done Cry It Out. It was, Cry It Out was um, up, like, like had just closed when they got the book. And it's a play about moms. And I think they were like, oh, we know a, a person who writes about moms. And they handed me the book. It was so kismet. Wow, that's fantastic. And but you had to I mean, I read the book too. You had to create a whole narrative that's not in the book. So does that uh, I'm curious about that process and how it works. Is it that you kind of sit down as the showrunner and hatch a, a basic idea that you that you then have some writers help you with? Or do you have to outline all of the stories and everybody else just writes them? Or how does it work? Well, it's a it's a little bit different with every project. Um, with a story like Made, you know, when I read the memoir, I learned so much. Like it was, it's really an educational tool, and I didn't want to sacrifice any of that. On the other hand, when you go and sit down with your husband or wife on Saturday night to watch Netflix, you don't want a lecture, and you don't want to. It like TV shouldn't taste like TV shouldn't taste like broccoli, right? It should taste like it should be a sneak attack, kind of like my plays. Like I like to sneak people into learning something. So I knew kind of off the bat that, that made was an incredible engine, the memoir, and that I wanted all the takeaway to be the same. But I also knew that we were going to have to create a lot of story to do that. Um, so to answer your question, when I first 
said I would do the book. And when we were taking it out and, and pitching it to Netflix, pitching it to HBO, you know, all the places, I would have to say, this is what I'm going to do. You know, we're going to, we're going to do 10 episodes. Her mom's going to be a huge character. Her dad's going to be a huge character. We're going to really build up Sean. We're going to get to know some of the people in the houses. We're going to get to know Regina. She's an invented character, but this is how she'll structure in the plot. And you really have to know the nuts and bolts of what you're going to do and the tone of it. Like, um, Kind of, kind of giving a 45 minute presentation on what the show will be. And then hopefully okay. someone like Netflix is like, okay, great. Here's, here's a green light and get your writer's room. So then you hire a handful. If you're lucky, you, you know, I could, I didn't have any, no one told me what to do. I got to hire whoever I wanted. And I hired uh, only four writers, three of whom are playwrights, three of whom I'm sure, you know, cause it's Colin, Becca Brunson and Marcus Gardley. So really accomplished playwrights and then um, Michelle Denise Jackson who is not a playwright but should be like she's an honorary playwright you know um, and so and then the five of us sit down and we take what I've said you know about the show the 45 minute presentation and we flush it out what are we doing in every episode what does this look like and that that process in the writer's room is the closest you'll get to a table read in the theater you know where you're just at a table <clears throat> you're reading that play and then you talk about it for you know nine days that's a writer's room is that every day. Um, and so it's very, hmm. very, very cool experience. And everyone's sharing secrets and, and um, we disagree sometimes and we do puzzles and it's a lot of talk about lunch. <laughs> we need, <laughs> That's what we need everybody snacks. says. That's what everybody says. Lots of eating. Yeah. But also what was cool about me and is that these five, these four writers and me, the five of us, we all really connected to different things in the memoir. And we also, all of us come from, all of us can relate to the memoir in different ways. And so you get five different perspectives on something. And I think, you know, Becca Brunstetter did so much of the writing of Regina and I think she could really connect to Regina. Um, and, you know, that character would not feel quite as beautifully drawn if Becca weren't in the writer's room. Like, so, so much of it is, it's a dinner party and the result of that dinner party is character, you know? So it's really, it's the most important thing you do is those writers. That is Okay, so I also just learned that today that you didn't write that Regina monologue because, and this is about my own projection, that when I'm watching it, I'm going, oh my God, this is so similar to Claire. Uh-uh, Claire. Is that the name of the character in Cry It Out that lives up high up on the hill? Oh, Adrian. Adrian. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Sorry. Okay. I, was thinking, I, I was thinking it sounded like an Adrian monologue. So that's fascinating that... that, that well... Let me explain one further thing, which is, so that's how the the show gets written. And yes, Becca Brunstetter wrote that monologue. But the other thing the showrunner does is it is my job to then go through all 10 episodes and make sure it sounds like one person wrote them. And, and so the show, so you kind of divide the writing in the room and then all funnels back to me and I rewrite it or fix things or sometimes you know sometimes you're doing a major rewrite sometimes you're just like with Regina's monologue it was so beautiful you know we we had to cut a couple of things for production but like it's it's Becca's work and but it's that's what tv writing is it's like there'll be stuff that Becca wrote in episode seven that she didn't write or you know like tv is very collaborative and then it all funnels through the showrunner who does a pass to make sure it's it's up to the standard that I want it's totally what I want you know so it is it is a writing job as a group, and then it is ultimately one person's writing job. It's both. Does that make sense? 
It does. And thank you so much for answering that question, because I have always wondered, and also even on television shows that have, have a different director every episode, yeah. I'm always thinking, how are they keeping true to the tone? But not, not, now I understand it. Well, yeah. I have so many things to ask you or want to talk to you about. Just one thing is that you have said that you love writing about class, which is a big part of MADE and your and your plays. Um, but the so I want to talk a little bit about that, but I also kind of want to talk maybe first about this thing that you said, you were surprised that people liked Made, And I've heard a lot of female writers express something like that. I'm surprised. And maybe people just say it in a way as, as, you know, not, not trying to, trying to be humble. Right. Okay. But I believe that you were surprised by it because it does seem like a kind of recent thing that the universe is allowing us to tell women's stories and having them at the forefront. I mean, it seems really pretty recent. And so are you, do you feel like this is you're part of a big sea change in terms of what's being represented on screen? You know, absolutely. I was talking to Netflix yesterday and they said, Last year, it was Bridgerton, you know, they said a lot of things, but they were saying last year, people, the surprise was everyone loved Bridgerton and loved Queen's Gambit. And this year, everyone loved Squid Game and loves Maid, which cracks me up. But but they think to, to be in the same sentence as Queen's Gambit, um, as the limited series, I, I mean, I think that's so exciting as a female writer, because she was an alcoholic kind of like piece of crap who was amazing at chess and went on this like, beautiful arc that was not traditionally feminine. It was usually that's a man like that's usually a male going through that and we're riveted by his addiction and his dysfunction and made is you know I think we're continuing what Queen's Gambit did as well like it's you know Alex is a lot of things but she's not a woman she is a character going through an arc and she makes a ton of mistakes and she um you know is a product of where she comes from and that is enough to carry a show and I feel like that is it, you're right. It's so recent. And I therefore assumed it would be treated like a, you know, like a niche, you know, maybe 500,000 people will watch it kind of like, cause we don't show up for those shows, but all of a sudden we really show up for those shows and we want to see a multidimensional and rich and layered woman at the story of her own damn story. It's really like exciting. It's exciting. Sometimes when I think about stuff like this, I just imagine you know, the people who are traditionally in charge of these things. I just mentioned them, but I imagine a bunch of guys sitting around being like, can you imagine people really want to hear about these dang women? <laughs> I mean, I feel like it must be a surprise to, to sort of the old guard that, yeah. you know, because of course everything does have to be motivated about what's going to be a return on your investment. And that, that, that's understandable. It's, I'm not like saying anybody's bad for that, but it is curious to me that there was just this, there was an assumption that if you made a female centered show, nobody would want to watch it except for every time they make a female centered, anything people want to watch it. Why, why does this keep being a surprise? I, 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 don't... I think it's going to stop being a surprise pretty soon because um, this cracked me up but my friend was doing a pitch yesterday at Hulu. And I guess like the conversation kind of organically came up with like, well, what's our maid, you know, <laughs> like what's the, <laughs> that the, you know, the, the producer was saying that, but that like, you know, people are starting to look for the, the queen's gambit, you know, trying to look for the female, you know, the unconventional sort of what's the, would be a surprising female story. We're starting to, 
not, like not only are we starting to have it at the table, but the market is. The market's starting to recognize that we're going to get eyes on the screen. And it's, um, you know, I shouldn't be so surprised by made. <laughs> right, right. And it helps that we have people like Margot Robbie and Reese Witherspoon and, and, and females who are having more of a say about what gets produced, you know, with what yeah. what books get optioned and then what gets produced. Absolutely. And, and more and more women are taking those jobs and taking those positions. And it's, yeah. yeah, it's a good, it's That's a sea of change. I also dare say, I think TV and film is ahead of it than theater, I have to say. I think. Girl, that's another thing I was going to say, because you had a quote in something I read, theater is behind. Theater is so behind. And this is, this so actually, um, unfortunately, it came as a surprise to me. Like the when I woke up to the fact that theater is so behind, uh, it was sad. And it also doesn't make sense. It also, the, you know, it should be, it's, it, it was 40 years ago. It's the most progressive part of art, I think. Yeah. Well, the behind. Theater doesn't treat women as as minority voices, and they have. And like that's what's so crazy is we've you know I think we've carved out space for for so much equality, and and like it's exciting to see the programming of theaters change. And like it's not just white men anymore. That's all. That's very very exciting. But heterosexual women stories about mothers, stories about our struggles, stories about um, you know me and my friends, there's no space for us on the New York stage. There's no space for my friends and I on the New York stage. And uh, I feel like, and then, you know, if you don't go up in New York, then you don't go all across the regions. And I think a great example is actually Cry It Out because that had a huge regional presence because I think people are starved for plays like that, that are about women and just, you know, and not women on Mars and not, not necessarily, you know, like it just normal women women having you know the wendy wasserstein plays of today are not produced in new york and it's it's a it's a huge issue i think yeah yeah it is so okay so the other thing is that you love to write about class which i find fascinating i love to read about it in any case what is your personal connection to your fascination with that issue well i think i grew i grew up in the hudson valley the daughter of two teachers so you know, I, I, I can't relate to made, for instance, in the sense of I always had food and I always had um, a certain amount of like structure and, and security, but I, my parents were incredibly well-educated and they kind of like my dad went to Cornell and it was sort of something we heard a lot about, even though we didn't kind of grow up in a moneyed area or a moneyed house, there was a sense of, there was a sense of you could scholarship your way into the next strata. And I think that I find that fascinating because it's just not true. I, it's almost impossible. It's almost impossible to change your class in America. And it's, it's, I feel like those walls are getting higher, not lower. And I watch people throw everything they have at, at the, at those chances to change, you know, change their stripes. And I, I just think the way we, we work in this country is we, it's we've made that harder and harder. There is no bootstrap narrative. There it does there's no bootstraps. It doesn't it's not a thing in this country. So I find that fascinating because I felt very gypped, you know? I felt like I worked very, very hard and like was always getting A's and being sophisticated and like it I couldn't graduate and get a, you know, a little studio in New York and intern at a publishing house, you know, like a lot of my friends who came from money could. And there's just it's so ingrained in our culture and I, it makes me mad and it's not you know, it's not fair, especially when I 
had a child and started thinking about cried out and just the way we treat the money directly affects materially even this country too. And like, I can't compete with somebody who has a trust fund. You know, I had to put Cora where I could afford her. And it's just bullshit that you can claw your way out of the class that you're born into. It's, it's extremely rare. Um, so I love that. It's bullshit and it's really dangerous because it makes people feel so inadequate when they can't, you know, and that that's also a great scene. I think it's in the first episode. Yeah. It's in the first episode when she goes and she's talking to the social worker and she's saying, so I can't get a job because I don't have daycare and I can't get daycare because I don't have a job. So I have to get a job yeah. to prove that I deserve daycare. I mean, it's, it's also backwards. Yeah. You're at a humongous disadvantage if you are born into you know, if you're born into poverty, you're a humongous disadvantage in this country. And it's like getting worse. That's the other thing is it's not, I mean, I have to believe that's part of why made is, is touching so many people's sense of justice too. It's like, oh yeah, it's getting worse. Like, why aren't we talking about this? It's, you know, Alex and I are, are not facing the same problems and it's just by where I was born and where she was born. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, you know, what family you're born into dictates so much of your struggle yeah and and that that the sort of historical narratives would have you believe that it's it's the opposite of that and that and that everybody left england to get away from that but then yeah just created the same exact thing here so um another thing that i heard or i read that you said that really took my breath away is you said that when you became a mother your you didn't say your resolve for your career. You, the phrase that I, that's sticking out to me is you said, I went from being the secretary of my own company to the CEO. And it just, that just really like hit me in the center of my chest. Can you just say a little bit more about it? What, what you meant by that? Sure. I think that, well, probably like, <laughs> probably like many women when they become moms, I, um, I was frustrated that, I had, I had this thing that I was good at that I'd studied for so many years that I'd given so much time and love to my playwriting career and that it did not love me back in the sense that I could not afford to take Cora to a music class, you know, and it made me very, it made me very frustrated that, you know, I, I had devoted my, myself to this this field that I had a passive relationship with. Like I was waiting for someone to call and tell me they were gonna do a reading or, you know, or I was waiting for my career to start. And I think what happened when I had a when I had Cora was I I wanted to provide for her. And I also wanted to I wanted to show her that you could be tough and you could be an active participant in your career. Like that it I didn't have to wait for it to happen. And so Part of it was I was I just kind of said the things we all want to say out loud as a women, but I actually said them, which was like, "Hey, agents, what the f? I am funny and talented. I want to work in TV. I want to take a music class with my daughter. What do I have to do to do that?" And I, I you'd be shocked, I think, how freeing and wonderful it is to just stand up for yourself and to make demands. And um, you know, and I wanted to I wanted to take an expensive music class with my daughter, and I wanted to have a career. And I was like, I'm not going to wait for it to happen because. I know if someone gives me a chance, I'm going to do, I'm going to go far in this field. Like, cause 
I don't know. Does that make sense? So I kind of like wait, I stopped waiting for the phone to ring and started making the calls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And also what I'm hearing is you stopped uh, just blindly participating in the myth that everything can only work a certain way, which I feel like is something that we can all relate. Or, I mean, it's something that Boz and I talk a lot on this podcast about, like just making so many assumptions about what, what we're definitely not entitled to have and what we're, you know, what's definitely for other people and not for us without ever once actually saying that out loud or asking for what we want. And actually yesterday, Chisa said the exact same thing. She said she, she was trying to be humble and say, it's because she doesn't know how the system works. So she didn't know she couldn't ask, which, you know, okay, maybe, but it's very inspiring to hear that now you could just decide what you want to do with your life and your career. You could decide that you want to have a work-life balance and then have it. Yeah. And, you know, I think actors have this too. We are always waiting for the phone to ring. And at a certain point, uh, I think that's a really tough way to be a mom because you can't count on anything and you're spread so thin. And I was just kind of like, no, I'm going to generate, I'm going to generate this. And um, I I can't really define the moment, but I will say for me, it was emotional. I I stopped, I stopped letting theater tell me how to feel about myself. a little bit. I love that. That's great. <laughs> Theater, I mean, it's a little bit like the terrible boyfriend that you just can't leave, right? Like I would be like, <laughs> I would be like, here's my new play. Do you love it? And they'd be like, um, maybe, you know, maybe we'll do a reading of it. And I would be like, but it's my whole heart and I love you. And then, you know, and I finally like kind of broke up with that boyfriend in the sense that like, no, I'm really good at this. And like, I'm going to go where the love is and I'm going to figure out how to pay my bills doing this. And uh, maybe you'll miss me and come back, you know, <laughs> but you know, you, it's hard as an artist. You can't let someone else tell you what your worth is. And, and theater is very conducive to that. Yeah. Oh my God. That's so true. Um, and that's, by the way, like a big part of the character of Alex. She does that too. I mean, she was not that much to leverage did still find a way to just be very active about asking for what she wants. And I can see what you're saying about how, how having a kid makes that very clear. Whereas maybe you don't feel so um, entitled to ask for what you want when it's just you, but when you know that it's somebody else who's depending on you, then it's that it doesn't feel like you're asking for yourself. It feels like you're asking for your family. Yeah. And you see injustice with fresh eyes when you have a child, you know, because, uh, I don't know. I feel, I feel like certainly in my case, I would, I would, I was so focused on being a good collaborator, being polite, being liked, you know, um, uh, you know, being grateful for the breadcrumbs that I got, you know, emotionally in my life. And I mean, honestly, it was a professional change, but it was primarily an emotional change. I was like, yeah, I don't want breadcrumbs anymore because my daughter deserves better than breadcrumbs. And so it just sort of filtered across all the fields, <laughs> but, but yeah, motherhood does that. Yeah, it it does. Well, so I don't know if I ever told you this. Uh, the, the reason I was looking through our emails earlier is I wanted to see if I I was sure I had said this thing to you that I cannot find in my email. So I'm going to say it to you now, which is that um, when I was directing your play, um, I wrote to you just about some things that I wondered if we could change. And you gave me the most thoughtful responses which was is to say you didn't invalidate that I was asking you, but you still stood up for what you what for the integrity of the play. I feel like you're gonna cry. I never saw anybody do that before. <laughs> <laughs> and um it was a really great 
I wish I wasn't crying as I was trying to say this to you, but <laughs> it was a great thing to, it, it, it was a, you were a great role model for me in that moment. And I always appreciate that. So thank you. Oh, Gina, thank you. Well, you know what? Thank you for wanting to have a conversation with me about it. Cause like, I also think that's a sign of a fantastic director that you let me into your process and, and your thoughts about it. And I know you did a fantastic job with the play because I had scouts in that area who saw it. And, um, you know, so whatever you were, whatever you were working through artistically, you certainly landed that, you you know, landed that plan beautifully. Thank you. I had, and I had so much fun doing it. So tell me about some of your mentors. We had a, a nice discussion the other day about the the power of mentors. And some people go kind of through their whole training and never really feel like they connect with a mentor. Did you have mentors along the way? Yes, I'm very lucky, actually. Um, I'm very lucky. I, I'm sure most people who go to Juilliard say this, but I... In my case, it's it's really, really true that Marsha Norman was a wonderful mentor to me. I met her at Tisch, and Tisch is a funny place because it's a larger program. You know, you don't have that one-on-one with your professors that you do at Juilliard where there's just a handful of you. But And I didn't stand out at Tisch. I sort of, my husband was, you know, my husband was sort of the star of our playwriting class, and I hadn't found my voice, and I was sort of, I just wasn't like the star student. And she was, she saw something in me, and I don't think she saw like a polished playwright yet, but she saw, I think there's just, she saw a way to help me find my voice. And she hired me as her assistant coming out of that MFA program. And I always think like it was sort of charity work because she didn't need an assistant. She was so on top of her life, but I think she wanted to let me hang out with her and see how she conducted her business. So she was working on law and order, um, criminal intent. See, yeah. Yeah. And so I was on set with her. I got to do research with her for the scripts. She was doing the color purple and I got to go to rehearsal, usually just to bring a coffee that I could watch. And it was, you know, she's also a mother and um, I don't know, it was really, it, it was so generous of her because I got, I just got to see that you, what a woman in power looks like and, and um, a woman on her voice. And she also says no a lot. And I grew to really respect that, um, especially later when I became a mom, but you don't F with Marsha. I mean, she'll shut stuff down. She's really, I mean, she's such a generous person here. She did this thing for me. I'm a total stranger, but she's also like, she knows her worth. So I, I was very grateful to spend those years with her. And then, uh, and then she invited me to Juilliard. And then when I was ready, really gave me, I mean, Juilliard is so much pressure. And the thing about Juilliard is you have to know what your voice is to go there. And so it's almost like she was helping me find my voice. And then when I found it, gave me this incredible opportunity to go to Juilliard. Um, so she, honestly, like very, very good to me and such a mentor. Um, and I'm very lucky. And then on the West Coast, I've had a wonderful mentor in John Wells because he he's just one of the most terrific showrunners um, and producers. But it's funny because I everybody knows that. That's not a secret in L.A. But to work for him as a writer and to be in his writer's room, I learned so much from him about how to empower the people around you. Um, how to become like, you know, there's so many toxic writing rooms and toxic jobs that my friends tell me and it sounds terrible, but everyone on a John Wells show is thrilled to be there and very lucky to have that job and they know it. And like, just that there's a way to do things gracefully. So, um, he, and, and then he got this book and handed it to me and gave me my first chance to be a showrunner. So uh, I've, had a, I've been very lucky to have him as a mentor on this coast. 
And the toxic, I've heard a lot of stories too about toxic writers rooms and maybe that's also something that's going to get phased out because it, like so many of these things, you just, you just need more samples. You need, you know, you need more samples in your data set so that you, you know, I mean, if 99% of everything is run in one certain way, then there's little there's little chance that it's going to change, but when when the tide starts to shift, maybe there's a little few more samples in your data set that show, no, you could just be a regular nice person and still get the same, you know, get the same job done. That, that's nice to hear. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, da, 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 da. oh, one, another favorite line from Maid is when Alex is talking to her dad about I think this might be at the last episode or near the end. And she says, she's trying to tell him that her husband or her whatever boyfriend abused her and her father's not taking it in. And she says, do you hear the words that are coming out of my mouth right now? That was another thing that really hit me because, you know, Denial is really not a passive thing. Like you have to work pretty hard at defending your denial on something. And I'm really familiar with saying something that feel, you know, that's a truth for me to people who, I mean, act as if you're, you know, like you're invisible. And that turns out to be a really shaping force in a lot of people's lives. And, the, you know, so anyway, I'm just curious about your own relationship and experience with denial. Well, I love that you love that moment because I remember with that scene feeling like something was missing. And I remember, um, <laughs> you know, I know a lot about denial, but what I really know a lot about is gaslighting and denial is a form of gaslighting where you're just like, I'm, I'm not going to acknowledge your reality. And, um, you know, I learned this tool a few years ago from a fantastic therapist that like, it's okay to just pause and be like, but you actually are hearing me, right? Like this is English and you understand these words. <laughs> like, and I've, I've actually tried that tool in my life and still had someone not, not like not be able to confirm that they're hearing the words. Um, and so it was when I, and then when I put it in the scene that it felt like, Oh, that's what was missing. It's just this like, how far are you going to take this denial? And he still can't, right? I mean, I think Billy might nod, but he doesn't say anything. Like, I think gaslighting and denial and emotional abuse, I mean, I could write 40 more shows about this. I am fascinated by it. And the thing we don't talk about it as a form of abuse, and we should, it's like weirdly, I think, as as violent, if not more violent than physical abuse because you don't realize it's happening. Like Alex in the pilot, she doesn't know she's a victim of abuse and she is such an, a victim of abuse, which I hope we demonstrate in the show that you have to go on that ride with her. But you know, it's so corrosive and there's nothing worse than having someone tell you what, what's real is not real day after day, year after year. Like this is an area that I know a lot about. <laughs> I, I sense yeah. you do too. Yeah. Oh yes. And actually um, my, kind of where I put my energy in terms of recovery is with codependency and denial and codependency are just, I mean, that's, that's the, it's denial is the perfume of codependency. It's just, it's everywhere. And what I think really gets triggered for people who want to keep pretending like they can't hear the words you're saying is because I find this in my family, like 
the way that denial really shows up in my family is if I acknowledge a truth that's too true, I think what happens to other people is they feel that if they even just validate that that's my truth, that that somehow means that they have to acknowledge it for their own selves and their own lives. And that's really like the forbidden thing that, you know, that people who don't want to go there can't do. They, they can't, it's like the Pandora's box. If I start to look at, you know, if I, if I acknowledge that what you're Mm -hmm. saying about this is true, then I can't help but start to acknowledge all of the other things as well. I think what you just said is, is brilliant because I think people think denial is just, is inactive, but it's aggressive. It's so aggressive. It's really violent, you know, intense denial, that gaslighting of like, I will not even acknowledge, I hear the words you're saying. It's, it's, it's so active. It's, I mean, it's so aggressive. What you said was really, I think really smart, really right. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that people, I love that people are flipping out about Hank with me. Like, how does he just sit there and let Sean treat her like that? And like, you know, and that's what I mean. I think she's mistreated throughout the show, but I think what Hank does to her in that moment with the denial is, is I think a lot of us recognize that. Yeah. And I really appreciate the, the way you rolled out this whole concept of emotional abuse, because even I, who feel like I've spent so much time working on this stuff and I was a therapist, um, even I was found myself being like, oh, he didn't hit her. You know, she left, he didn't hit her. Hmm. I really had to check that in myself. And I was because one of the things that denial, I mean, in the absence of act, you know, saying you're wrong or whatever, and and, and it's just, I don't hear you. You just assume that what you're saying isn't valid. It's, it becomes this thing that you do to yourself where you, you know, if somebody invalidates you enough, you start to invalidate yourself. So I loved how you rolled that out in the series. Are people talking to you a lot about that? Yes, they are. And how about in episode eight, where you are like, oh, Sean's changed and he's turned around. He's going to be a carpenter, you know, and like you, it's, and you, you find yourself, or at least I did. And I I, it seems like audiences too, just kind of like, oh, maybe this is a happy love story. Like maybe he changed it. And, you know, and, um, and that, you know, that is all by calculated manipulative writing that I, like my secret agenda with me was, you know, and I claimed 10 hours because I wanted, I wanted the audience to go on the actual experience of that cycle and to get thrown off by it and caught up in it. Like, oh my gosh, I'm back. I'm back and I'm in the pit. How did this happen? And I wanted to show you how it happened. And I also was like, I dare you to watch made and tell me that that's not domestic violence because it is, Mm -hmm. you know, um, emotional abuse is violent. It, what happens to her is violent. Um, so that was like my secret mustache twirly goal with the show. (laughs) Yeah, no, it, it it hit, it totally played. And, and I think the other thing that's great about that is that when we have seen depictions of violence against women in film. I mean, the best we could in television, the best we could have hoped for is some woman who's abused, who isn't a total idiot because mostly what it is, how it's portrayed is some dumb person who doesn't, who's too dumb to know she's being abused. So therefore she goes back. And I also, the very, the subtle, well, I don't know if it's subtle, but the, the um, subplot 
with the first roommate that she has when she goes to the, not roommate, but you know, the, the woman who lives in the shelter with her, who introduces her to, you know, how to, how to do life there. I love, I, that was heartbreaking her story of, because it is that you, 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 yes. In the audience, we're saying, yeah, maybe, maybe Sean is a good guy. Maybe, maybe all he really needed was to sober up and become the good person he was meant to be. Yep. I mean, it's funny. I did an interview yesterday where this gentleman was like, is Sean okay? Like, does he end up okay in life? And, and, uh, (laughs) and I, and I found myself sort of being like, I've never really thought of that because he, you know, he's fictional, but I, I, I don't know. I'm not sure that that guy's ever going to make it out of that trailer. You know, I'm not sure um, that he's going to get sober and be a great dad. I'm not, but I do feel like when he says at the end, I'm going to get sober and come see her all the time. I don't believe him. Um, and and I think that's his TV show, right? That's his cycle that he has to break. But my goal was to show that he's caught in his own cycle too. Like we are all kind of caught in our own cycles and it's so hard to break, you know? Yes. Um, and, and Alex barely makes it out. And most women and men in her situation, the show ends in episode eight under the in the pit. Most people don't get out of the pit. And she is so smart and driven that she can but she's the exception and not (laughs) she's a great exception yeah 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 so we're i want to be honoring your time i told you we're only going to talk for an hour but but um, before we begin to wrap up i just want to uh, ask you so since we've spent a lot of time talking about your success let's hear about some of your failures what have been some mistakes (laughs) that you've made maybe maybe you maybe even like when you when you made first the transition from playwriting to writing in Hollywood, what were some of the mistakes that you made along the way? Well, I, I think the, one of the great learning opportunities I've had as a human being, not just as a writer was um, my first big production as a playwright in New York. And it was, you know, I was barely out of school and I felt um, just so grateful for the opportunity. You know, it was a big production with stars in it and a fancy director and, and everyone there was fancy except me. And the process, I have to say, kind of went that way. Like, <laughs> like, uh-huh. is this elemental? Uh, it's actually, it's a play close up space. It's about a dad and a daughter. Um, it, it's about grief and pain and there's a lot of magical realism. And I'm, I'm sure it's far from the perfect play but it got obliterated by the press and squarely blamed on me, the most inexperienced person in the production. But what I learned from it is that I knew things about it were wrong. I knew immediately things about the production were wrong and I didn't use my voice. I didn't, you know, what happened with the play is my fault. I didn't, I didn't ring the bell. I didn't say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't refuse the rewrites. Like I, you know, and everybody there had good intentions. Everybody wants to have a hit play, but people saw it a different way than I did. And, uh, and it was wonderful people. There was no reason why I couldn't have said, hey, yo, this isn't what I wrote. And uh, I really, it was a crushing blow to have that play go so badly and um, to to get such, hor- I mean, if you want to feel bad, just Google it. It's the worst reviews. It's like, uh, one, of the, one of the reviews was like, is she sleeping with the director? Like, why did she even get this product? You know, it's this oh, so mean. Oh, no. Well, that's just straight up misogyny. I mean, that's. <laughs> it, it, was, it was so mean. But what it taught me was I, since that moment, I've really listened to my gut. And if my gut says this isn't right, I say it and I don't worry about how it's going to come across. It sounds like I did that with you. <laughs> like, you, like yeah. you know, but I, I have my sense of like, no. And, and, it, and I learned the hard way 
um, in that moment that uh, nothing is more important than your own gut. And so, um, and you know, it's kind of, I had like a kind of a lot of momentum as a playwright, it really stopped that momentum. It sent me into a deep depression. I mean, I lost so much because I didn't listen to my voice. So um, that was my big theater lesson, which is applied to everything. But um, the, the big mistake I've made in TV to film, um, I've actually been really, really, really lucky and worked with fantastic people. Um, but I, I think that it, stuff can go sideways here. It's a it's a funny town, you know, and uh, I've worked with wonderful people, but once in a while, you know, something's happening and then it just disappears. And so, <laughs> you know, like that you're gonna, t you know, I right before me and I came so close to having another job that I really wanted and was passionate about. It would have been my first time co-show running something, show running something. And, uh, you know, we were all but celebrating and then the whole thing fell apart because the, the actress wanted her friend to write it. And like bull, bull crap like that happens all the time in LA. And so it's a hard time. It's a hard lesson the first time, you know, where I was like, oh, people don't, <laughs> you know, like my agent sent me champagne. Like it was, it was happening. And then it very suddenly wasn't. And so I think it made me realize that um, don't pop the champagne until the contract is signed. <laughs> That put and put that on a t-shirt yeah <laughs> that was a tough lesson to learn though because I was like wait oh my god like I went from like sky high to and you know nobody yeah. really nobody it was just very sobering so um, yeah and and writing is so personal that it's really hard not to take both the criticisms to heart and then the the, the opposite of the criticisms and you know it's it's hard not to make it it's hard to stop making it about personal validation, you know, when, when somebody likes or doesn't like your stuff. And yeah. That, that's the journey I'm on right now. <laughs> not, oh. not making it about, you know, like it, if somebody didn't like my play, doesn't mean they don't, it doesn't have anything to do with whether or not they like me. Yeah. You know, that's, I'm glad you're learning that. Cause I also can tell you, I just staffed a writing room for the first time. And so that experience was really eye opening because I read, unbelievably fantastic things. And I didn't meet with them because, uh, you know, you're designing a dinner party with five people and you kind of have to, and like you, the truth is like I said, I passed on a lot of wonderful writers whose work I friggin' loved and like, can't wait to read for the next thing and have mentioned and recommended to other people. And that's part of it is like, you don't know how people are experiencing your work and um, the fans that you're building along the way. And I think we quickly assume the worst, right? <laughs> I know I do, yes. <laughs> but like, but the fact is like that you don't, you don't know how close you got. It, my guess is you're getting close to stuff and you don't know and, and aren't, aren't yeah, able to right. know that. Yeah. Yeah. And then at the end of the day, the only thing you have control over is whether or not you go back to your computer later that day and just keep writing. Yeah, you got to run run your own race, which is so hard to do. I mean, listen, it really, really is. Um, but yeah, the only thing you, the only thing you can control is your output. True. Which is horrible. I mean, I I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> I, for the first for the for the first time in two years, I don't have anyone calling me today to be like, where are the pages? You know, like I, I mean, part of it too is it's it's helpful when you have deadlines and pressure. That's why I loved grad school because I'm. The second Monday of October, I was reading my play out loud. And so um, I had to go write, you know, make sure I write it. So I also feel like that's without that, it's also a, it's a hard thing about 
feeling like you're not moving forward too is that lack of deadlines. But again, you don't, you don't, you don't know how far your work is going and how, who's reading it and what it will lead to the next time. And I mean, I've gotten, I have gotten rejected on so many things that have led to a meeting later, you know, like so many hmm. things um, that I, so many jobs I wanted that I didn't get, but then later someone's like, Oh, we read her for that. We should meet her for this. And I didn't get that job either, but, the, but it's like, it's just funny. Um, so yeah. Well, yeah. you're, you're like weaving a whole blanket of your career and you never know, you know, where, where this, you know, where the threads are going to end up. Absolutely. And every time I get bummed out, which is a lot, cause I'm a writer, all writers get bummed out. Um, I, I try to think about and visualize the stack of things I'm going to write in my life. Um, and when I get terrible notes or when I get clobbered with notes and I feel depressed, I also think about the stack of work that I'm going to do in my life and how this piece that I'm writing right now is just one of them, you know, and uh, that like, that's my, that's my real tombstone, like that pile, you know? Yes. Oh, that I pile. love that. What a great image and what a great <laughs> note to end on. Thank you so If you liked what you heard today, please give us a positive five-star review and subscribe and tell your friends. I Survived Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. For more information about this podcast or other goings-on of Undeniable Inc., please visit our website at undeniablewriters.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you.